Welcome to Coming Out the Pod with me, Ed Connell, the podcast where members of the LGBTQ community share their coming out stories with me. The guides on how to make good podcasts tell you that a good podcast length is about 40 minutes, which is the length of the average commute. But they also say if the content is good enough, then it can be as long as you like. Well, how can you cram Dr. Sophie Cook's incredible life into just 40 minutes? Well, the simple answer is you can't. In this episode, Sophie talks about her life in the RAF as a jet engine technician, how she then returned to the UK and decided to transition in 2000, but stopped when her son was born with health problems. She talks about how she began work as a photographer, ending up as AFC Bournemouth's official club photographer during the period when they gained promotion to the Premiership in 2016, and how she was the first person to come out as transgender in the professional game. She talks about how AFC Bournemouth dealt brilliantly with her transition to Sophie. And then they called all the players together and Jason Tyndall, the, the manager of the club now, just turned around and said, um, I suppose you noticed our photographer's changed a bit since last season. Uh, I'd, I'd like you to meet Sophie. And then our captain just started clapping and the rest of the players joined in. And then the captain said, right, let's go and train. She also talks candidly about her struggles with mental health chronicled in her first book, how she stood for election to Parliament, as well as how COVID has prompted her to press the reset button on her life and to detoxify it. I'm exhausted just reading it all. I hope you love Sophie's story as much as I did. Please be aware that this podcast contains some bad language and themes of an adult nature. So I'd like to introduce uh, my next guest, who is uh, Dr. Sophie Cook. What are you a doctor in, Sophie? Um, I'm actually a doctor, a doctor of letters, um, which it was an honorary degree from Bournemouth Uni. And um, the, the funny thing is that, that sort of when uh, I told someone uh, at work, they they, they turned around and asked me if I could write them sick notes. <laughs> I, I said, well, well I, I, I can write your sick notes, but there's no guarantee that they'll accept them. They, they, uh, and I had to explain to them that doctor of letters was different to doctor of medicine. Yeah. And, and they just looked at me and they said, doctor of letters, you must be really good at the alphabet. <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds very impressive, I have to say. <laughs> I, I, I tell you what, I joined the Air Force at 16. I never went to uni. And and to get an honorary doctorate from my hometown uni, um, basically for keep keep opening my mouth, um, <laughs> I, I, I just, I tell you what, it was like the biggest honour of my life. And, and I've actually got um, the coat of arms of Bournemouth Uni tattooed on, on my left forearm. Wow, uh, and their motto is to learn is to change, and That's because I think uh, because I didn't go to uni, mine actually says to change is to learn. Yeah, uh, which I thought was highly appropriate for for my journey. Well, I'm afraid to say you're you're not the first guest on my podcast who has an honorary degree from their hometown, nor are you the first guest of mine with a military background, because James Wharton, who was the second episode in this series, and um, was bestowed with the exact same honors by. Um, his hometown university as well, but nonetheless, very impressed. Um, well, th- th- thanks for making me feel not special. Yeah, che- <laughs> cheers for that. Yeah, I love to put my guests at ease from the off. <laughs> um, I just want to do a quick 
uh, overview of your career. So I'm going to come back and speak to you about various stages of your, your career and how it fits into your story in a moment. But, I mean, you've had a fairly diverse background. I mean, you just said you joined the RAF age 16 and you were, I think, a jet engine technician. Is that the right phrase? Yeah, I was a jet engine technician on tornadoes. I spent 15 years uh, servicing tornadoes, both in the Royal Air Force, and then I also spent seven years in Saudi Arabia, uh, which which was was an experience. Um, but um, yeah, I, I loved it. I was third generation Air Force. I was brought up on stories of what it was like in the service, and um, it, it it was my, my dream ever since I was a kid, and. Um, it, it it was definitely an experience, but it, it all seems like a very, very, very long time ago now. Yeah, I, I bet. And um, from what I could gather, after that, you then began working in photography. Have I got that right? Yeah. Uh, basically, I I came back from Saudi Arabia in '98 because um, I, I I just thought that the millennium, the world's changing. Um, I thought I'd be it'd be too depressing to see in the new millennium in Saudi Arabia. So I came back, gave up being, being an aircraft technician and, and became a photographer. I'd, I'd been taking photos since I was a kid. My granddad got me into photography and um, people started buying prints of things. That I, I'd photograph rugby matches and, and landscapes and, and be, be, being the, the sort of naive idiot that I am that just go, you know what, I'm going to go and do that. <laughs> um, I came back, I, I checked in a, a well-paid tax-free job, came back from Saudi Arabia and turned around to everyone and said, I'm a photographer now. But And then basically spent the next three years trying to work out how you actually got paid for doing it. And you started off, I think, by taking pictures of, of things like rock bands and concerts and things like that. And, and Ultimately, and I guess one of the ways in which most of our certainly LGBT listeners will be familiar with, you end up being a photographer for Bournemouth Football Club. Uh, yeah, AFC Bournemouth. Bournemouth Football Club is a very different team. They're, they're, they're a non-league club based based out of uh, a football ground about half a mile away from Dean Court. And I, th- I th- well, when, when I used to go see them, they used to get about 50 fans. Uh, they, they might be up to about 75 now. But, um, <laughs> But no, no, actually, when I first started as a photographer, I took photos of everything. Um, did, I photographed about four, four, five hundred weddings. Yeah. Um, I, I did schools photography. I was that person that had to go and try and get a class full of teenagers to look like the human beings for the picture for, the, for their gran. Um, but yeah, and um, and then I started taking photos of, of bands and. I'd been doing work for AFC Bournemouth and also a non-league football club down down in Dorset, Wimborne Town. I was their photographer for about seven years and eventually sort of I ended up getting the job for AFC Bournemouth. And when I joined the club, we were at the bottom of League One. Uh, we, we were in a terrible position. We were in danger of getting relegated to the lowest division in English football, uh, lowest um, football league division. And I, I joined the club at exactly the same time that our manager, Eddie Howe, came back from Burnley. And um, basically, we then started on a, a, an amazing journey that took us all the way to the Premier League. Yeah, and what was that, 2015? You brought uh, the yeah. Premier League? 
Yeah, 2015, uh, we got promoted to the Premier League and it was at that moment that I decided to come out. Yeah. Uh, Basically, I'd made the realisation earlier in 2015, about January, uh, but sort of kept it quiet until the football season was over. and, And then my last match with Bournemouth as Steve, uh, the person that I was, was the game where we got promoted at uh, Charlton where we became football league champions and I'm there right at the centre of the celebrations photographing the team uh, on the greatest day in the history of my club and and my first game back as Sophie was was our f- first uh, pre-season friendlies for our first season in the Premier League. But the the bit in between was was absolutely terrifying because no one else had ever come out as transgender in professional football before, and I've, I had no idea what to expect. Well, it's, it comes no surprise to you. I'm going to come back to that sort of stage <laughs> one and ask some more questions about it. But I, I guess just to sort of bring things up to date, I think in 2017 you gave up the photography as a job and you stood as a candidate for um, Parliament. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, so, so there's a Labour candidate in 2017 general election uh, in basically a, a no-hope uh, Tory seat. Uh, it'd been Tory forever. Uh, two years earlier, the, the Labour Party had only got 9,000 votes to, to the Conservatives, 25,000. Um, and basically, when, when I got selected, people thought it was a joke and... Um, I think I was the only person that believed we could do something. And in the end, we got 25, 000, uh, 21,000 votes and I narrowly missed out on being elected as as both our first Labour MP for here, but also at the the first trans MP. And I want to ask you some questions later on about that, that experience, but I always ask um, sort of the guests on the podcast, Sophie, just sort of just set the scene for us a bit so they can understand your story a bit better. I've been doing my maths, and I reckon <laughs> you are about 52, 53. Oh, I'm 26. <laughs> 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 yeah, 26 times two with a bit, yeah. Okay. Uh, no, I'm 53. Right, okay. And you are born in 1967, have I got that right? Yeah, yes. And I know that um, you sort of grew up with your parents, but I don't know if there were siblings that you grew up with. Yeah, yeah. Basically, I had um, one brother, uh, younger brother, by about 18 months. Right. And um, the, 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 the interesting thing is that sort of when, when pe- people are asking you questions to test whether you're, you're trans enough, yeah. uh, one of the questions they always say is, um, well, as a child, did you play with girls' toys? It's like, well, no, because we didn't have any in the house. It's like, it's, it, I mean, let's face it, there, there were so many stupid, stereotypical questions that, that people always used to throw at you when you said you were trans. But, yeah, no, I, I grew up in a house, well, there was, poof, there was, what, uh, four generations in my house when I was a kid. There was there was me and my brother. There was my parents. There was my grandparents, and there was my great grandmother. Wow! All in one, all in one house. Um, and and it, it was amazing growing up with with all the different generations together. Yeah, sort of gave, gave a very well rounded um, childhood, I think. And you say there was a sort of there's a military background to the family. Mm. 
And well, I say military. Royal Air Force is it's the least military of all the services. Um, yeah, my, my my granddad was out in Burma during the Second World War. Uh, and um, the interesting thing is that I've got a load of his... Um, He's writing from during the war, and 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 there's there's an address book in inside the front cover of the book. There's all the places that he was stationed at, and and they were moving virtually every two three weeks. Okay. And and I think if you looked at the map, you can you can trace the the advance of the Japanese. Yeah. And then during the seventies, my, my dad was uh, an engineer on Phantoms out in Germany, and I gr- I grew up with those big noisy jets flying over the house, so. It was um, it was inevitable that I'd end up either loving them or hating them. Yeah, and and so you say you you joined up at sixteen, so yeah, pretty early on. Um, mm. Looking back, uh, so it was a question I always ask my guests. But I mean, when do you first think you realised that you were either different or trans, or I mean, how, how, I don't know. Well, how do you? Well, I mean, I I think that my first realization that I was different was uh, when I was about seven. Uh, and and I, I think it's interesting that when you talk to trans people, when you talk to gay people, um, the age of awareness tends to be slightly different. Yeah. Uh, I, I, and this is just, this is just generalizations, but I, I think that Trans people tend to realize about sort of between five and seven when they realize that there's a, a difference between the genders. Uh, and I think that, that you realize your sexuality a bit more when you actually realize that there is such a thing as sexuality. And, and so that tends to come about sort of between sort of 10 to 13, depending on how, how advanced you are. Yeah. Um, but for me, around about seven, there's, there's a story that I tell of basically going on a family holiday to a holiday park in South Wales. And I, I have this memory of meeting the other kids and, and telling them that my name was Jenny. And all week I was Jenny and no one batted an eyelid. Um, and then at the end of the week, sort of, we're, we're loading all the stuff back into my dad's Ford Anglia. Um, and sort of the kids came up and said, bye, Jenny. And my parents looked at me kind of weird. And, and I just, I mean, let's face it, I'm a parent now. I, I know that every time a kid lies, it's blatantly obvious. Yeah. Um, but I, I thought I'd saved it. I just turned around and went, weirdos. They've been saying that all week. Absolutely no idea what, what they're going on about. But I I don't know. I mean, I also went through a stage where I was calling myself Ray for a bit because I liked Ray Clements, who played for Liverpool. But there you go. <laughs> I've I've no idea. But but I th- I think that was the moment that I realised that I I didn't quite fit into the boxes that I was being pushed into. And h- how did you deal with that? Was it something that you kind of thought about, but were able to sort of put to bed and ignore? Was it always there? It was, it was always there. I mean, like, like I say, I, I grew up in a house where sort of the youngest female was my mother. And, I mean, I, I remember doing that teenage thing of looking through the Littlewoods catalogue and, and looking at clothes and finding that I was more drawn to the clothes than sort of the usual teenage boy thing of 
going straight to the lingerie section and uh, treating it as cheap porn. Yeah. Um, which let's let's face it, back back in the seventies before before the advent of the internet. Um, all, all your younger listeners will, will not believe that there was a time before the internet, a, a time before freely available hardcore pornography uh, of all manner and shape. Um, and, and let's face it, growing up in the 70s, you, you had to take your titillation where you could get it. Well, it's interesting. A lot, of, a lot of my guests have obviously told their story about what it was like to grow up as lesbian or gay in the 70s, and they've told my listeners about how difficult it was and the perception that people had of lesbians and gays in the 70s but I mean what what was your recollection of you know the attitude towards trans people in the 70s well well basically we I didn't even know trans existed the the only time you ever heard anything about someone that was trans was if one of the Sunday papers the news of the world or the people decided to crucify some poor postman or lorry driver that had transitioned uh and and the the way that they always spoke about them was was like this person's a freak of nature and it it was horrendous and that it was always portrayed as some kind of dodgy fetish uh which basically is is the 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 mindset that a, a lot a lot of the transphobes are still stuck in yeah that, that basically trans people only do it for for the vicarious thrill it gives them i mean i i did a radio interview on irish radio last week and um <laughs> the funny thing is that one of the people that trolled me said that i didn't even have the decency to sound like a woman uh whilst at the same time turning around and saying that Trans people only ever pornified women, so so maybe I should talk like this and go. Mm, well, yes, it was so exciting. Yeah. yeah, but obviously that's the sort of voice that that I was supposed to come up with. But but back then, I I honestly believed that I was the only person in the world that had ever felt this way, because we didn't have the internet, we didn't have knowledge, we certainly didn't have any trans role models. Yeah. Um. And in fact, I think the first trans person in the public eye that I was probably aware of was um, Tula, the the um, model that was in one of the Roger Moore James Bond films, right. who who basically starred in this James Bond film, uh, and then after she'd appeared in the film, got outed by by, by the tabloid press. Yeah, um, but. Uh, until then, sort of, like I say, it was it was always pictures of truck drivers or postmen, sort of, with, with sort of dodgy wigs and and far too much makeup, uh, and and that 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 was the the image that the papers wanted to push, because mm-hmm. it, it it played into to their their moral superiority that they had about people. What what impact did that have on your mental health even as a sort of you know someone in their early teens well like I say I just felt so isolated it's it was obviously something that I couldn't tell anyone about because no one would understand because I was the only person in the world that had ever felt this way yeah um and I I think that it 
just made you feel that there was something deeply wrong with you to feel that way. It's like, well, well this, this isn't normal. I mean, obviously, as I grow up, the, the whole concept of what is and isn't normal is basically utter bullshit. Um, but, but back then, growing up as a teenager in the 70s, normal was what 99.9% of people were. Uh, and the ones that weren't normal were, were the freak show that you get in the Sunday papers. So, so how, I mean, how did you deal with the fact that you, that you knew you were trans, couldn't speak to anybody about it? I mean, how did that well, work? Well, I didn't actually know I was trans because I didn't have a word for it. Right. I, I just knew that there was something wrong with me. Yeah. There was something that didn't feel right. Um, I, I, I felt more comfortable identifying with, with female things, but I, I didn't know why. So, so it was, it was a deeply isolating and, um, very difficult position to be in. And I mean, I threw throughout my, I mean, I first tried to take my own life when I was 12. God. Um, I, I, I mean, and then I joined the Air Force at 16 at 18. I saved a colleague's life after he lost his arm in an explosion that led to post traumatic stress, which added on top of this isolation, this disconnection that I felt because of my gender identity, uh, meant that basically, I think from the age of about sort of 16 onwards, I was, um, uh, having serious levels of suicidal ideation and, and I was also self-harming as well. Um, and that, that was purely because of that isolation and the fact that I, I had no one to talk to about it. And I can only assume that the attitude of the military pre-2000 when LGBT um, people weren't able to serve in the military could only have compounded those feelings, I guess. Well, obviously, I couldn't have come out back then because I, I'd have been put on charges. I might have ended up in prison. I'd, I'd have been given a dishonourable discharge. Yeah. Um, and um, Gary, that's only nineteen years ago. That yeah, that, that is that. I mean, the 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 thing is, like, obviously, well, back before COVID, back back when the world included events and. And people met up in real life. Um, I'd go to these events and I'd meet all these people from the services, and and I, I'm just so impressed with the way that, that the military has embraced um, LGBT inclusion. And I tell you what, if if I was serving now, I I would love to transition into forces, but because. Uh, Actually, if you've got that understanding around you, it, I, ca I can imagine that it would actually be quite a, a, a nurturing, supportive place to, to go through it. Yeah. Um, because, because in many ways in the military, you are protected from the outside world. Um, as long as your team is functional and your team um, are supportive, then basically the rest of the world can't touch you. So uh, it, it, I'd love to transition into forces now. And it's, uh, it's testimony, I suppose, to the 
the strides that the military's taken that you're able to say that now, you know, in 2020, mm-hmm. when, as, as we just remarked, that was a very different world only yeah. 20 years ago. Um, you, you obviously, I think, said left the RAF when you were 98. And I know that you... Uh, uh, left the Air Force in 91 and then went out to Saudi Arabia. Oh, sorry. So right, yeah, seven years. Yeah. And um, yeah. obviously, at some uh, part, you got married, Sophie. How old did you yeah. get married? When, when did that happen? Uh, well, the first time, I, I, I think I was 23. Um, yeah, 23. And, and then I got married again when I was quite a lot older but um i mean the thing, thing is like when when i came out and the tabloids first ran my story um tabloids being tabloids quite often they'll just go for for lazy journalism and just basically doing a story by rote and they 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 wanted to continually put in the phrase that i was living a lie um, and, and I always turned around to them and said, I wasn't living a lie. I was living the life that I had to live at that time. Yeah. Um, because to say that I was living a lie does Steve, the person I was before, a massive disservice because he was struggling against suicidal feelings. He was struggling against so many things. And yet he managed to do amazing things with his life. Um, despite the fact that all he wanted it for it, it to do was for it to end. And um, I know that you're, you've got two children, haven't you, from your... Uh, no, I've got three. One, one from a first marriage, two from a second. Right, okay. And I, I read in one of the interviews you did that you said that you had originally attempted to transition in 2000. Have I got that right? Yeah, about sort of, I mean, when I came back from Saudi, I was sort of trying to work out what was going on with me. And I ended up going to the GP and I ended up at Charing Cross. And, and yeah, about that, around the turn of the millennium, I was, I was, I'd started to transition. I'd started on hormones. I was at uh, Charing Cross, which was a, a deeply unpleasant experience back then compared to, um, the the path nowadays. I mean, the path nowadays is difficult, but back then, um, I truly believe that um, the gender identity clinic's entire reason for for existing was was to effectively bully you out of transitioning, uh, to 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 make it so miserable and so painful, and to point out so many things that were gonna that you you weren't good enough at. That, that basically, if you then gave up, they could turn around and go, well, there you go. We, we were right, yeah. Um, but it was it, it was a very different world back then. Um, everywhere I went, I got abused, um, despite the fact that I was young and I looked hot, as opposed to now when I'm old and I look hot. <laughs> um, but... Um, it was, I th- it was, it was a very different world because, I mean, let's face it. About two thousand, trans people were still an oddity on the street. Yeah, um, it, it, I, f- I find it, I find it really interesting now that I can be out in any town. I can just be sat there having a coffee, and within ten minutes, I will see probably four or five trans people walk past 
And oh no, I mean, m- most of them go go about their lives with no one noticed them. But let's face it: if if you've been on the journey, you n- notice the signs. Yeah. But it's I I it just amazes me how many trans people there are that are, that are um that have managed to transition and find find their true selves. Um, a, a lot of them aren't out, and that's entirely up to them. And um. But for me, I, I I knew that that wasn't an option. And was it the sort of abuse that you suffered when you back in two thousand when you were attempted to transition? Was, was that what sort of stopped the whole process? I mean, is that what put you? Well, off? well, but basically, there there was there were a number of factors involved. One was the abuse and the fact that Sharon Cross were basically trying to bully me out of doing it. Yeah. Um, uh, I was well. I was in. I wasn't married. I was in a relationship, and then my partner got pregnant. Right. And w- when she first got pregnant, the plan was that our child would have two mothers uh, from the day they were born. Yeah. Which back in two thousand was well, it was unheard of, especially if one of them was trans. And unfortunately, on the day that my son was born, he had a massive seizure, and we nearly lost him. And as a result of the seizure, he ended up with uh, epilepsy and and learning difficulties. And I was so terrified that we were going to lose him. And and you know what? Everything else just seemed trivial and self absorbed compared to to the life of, of this this baby. Yeah. Uh, and it's like I I knew that if I carried on on my path and my transition, it would cause him pain. It would cause him, uh, cause his life to be more difficult than it needed to be. Yeah. So, so effectively I took Sophie and I murdered her and I buried her. And I, I didn't just not be Sophie. I denied that she'd ever existed. And, Every single day of the next 15 years, I, I thought about suicide. Um, even on days when I thought I was doing right, this little voice in the back of my head would go, yeah, but if you just let go of the steering wheel, it would all be over. Um, and, and yeah, next 15 years were literally a living hell. That's the thing in life. You get locked on, to, on a path, and, and once you're on that path, you don't always see see the see the off ramps. Yeah. Um and let's face it, once you go down a path, there's no way you can get back to the path that you're on because the the the, the road just disappears behind you. So you've got gotta find it find a new path and a new journey to to get to your final destination. So we fast forward fifteen years because you say you you killed Sophie off and that you know that was it. Um, but Sophie obviously didn't go away, and we're sort of fifteen years later. So so what changed that allowed you to make the necessary changes? Basically, it just reached the point where I either ended my life or I changed it. I. Back at the start of 2015, I I was secretly drinking. I was struggling with so many things. Um, I 
hated everything about myself. I, I was abusing myself with food, um, and and that self harm had, had really started to manifest it in a really unhealthy lifestyle. It's just I I hated myself, so I ate, so I put on weight, so I hated myself even more, and it, it was just a never ending cycle of self hate. And and then um, January 2015, uh, of all places to have my epiphany moment, I was in the Hotel Ibis Budget in Bradford. Um, <laughs> and and I was just stood there. Uh, I was out there for a couple of football matches, uh, and this light bulb just went off above my head. Uh, and it's like, and I just looked in the mirror, and I thought, that's why you hate yourself so much. And I went into town, I bought some clothes, I bought a wig. And um, you know what? The pain just stopped, just stopped instantly. And I thought, is that all it took? Mm. Um, but of course it wasn't because I then had to go and, and try, try and, well, rip my entire life up and, and see where the pieces landed. And to make things even more complicated, you were working in the sort of what is considered to be, although your experience I know is different, but what's considered to be a sort of pretty negative environment for LGBT people with players and fans. Uh, and they were working as the photographer for AFC Bournemouth on the on the cusp of their great promotion. That must have mm. made things exceptionally difficult for you, didn't it? Well, that's it. And, and the thing is, like, I realised that if I came out straight away, it would it would dis- distract from what the team were trying to do on the pitch. And football fans are not the most logical people in the world. They they have totally illogical relationships with their clubs. They they love them more than their own children. They'll name their children after the entire squad. Things like that. It's, but but it's it's a love that just goes beyond any kind of reason. And and I thought if I come out now and and it affects the team's performance I'll end up getting the blame no matter how uh, illogical that is but so I ended up living this double life I, I'd moved down to Brighton and during the week I was Sophie and at weekends uh, I was going back to football matches and pretending to still be Steve but but the thing is people noticed that something had changed because the first thing that happened was I lost about five stone in four months because I started caring about myself for the first time in my life. Uh, and, and I actually started smiling and I don't think anyone had ever truly seen me smile before. Yeah. So you waited, I think, didn't you, until the summer, until the end of the season before you obviously wanted to talk to employees about it. Before I ask you about the, the sort of very great story about how, AFC Bournemouth reacted to it. Where in in this process did telling your family and friends fit into all this storyline, Sophie? Well, um, probably about here. Yeah, it's <laughs> um, yeah, so, yeah, so that point just before I told the football club. Um, I, I, I sat down with my kids. And, and how old were they? Well, well, my 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 youngest my youngest daughter was eleven and and my son was fifteen and um so i mean the the thing is having me for a parent they weren't brought up with strict gender roles they were free to find their own path um but 
whether it's nature, nurture, whether it's pressure of the media, any of those things, their sort of gender roles and, and their spheres of interest are, are quite binary. Yeah. Um, and um, told my wife, first of all, and, and she said, well, I knew it was going to come back. Um, and and then the, the interesting thing is that sort of, it was about the time that Caitlyn Jenner uh, came out and, and my, my, my daughter being 11 years old knew all about the Kardashians. Uh, I still have no idea what they do or why they're so rich. Um, but, um, she started asking questions about Caitlyn Jenner and, um, my, my, my wife said, well, she's asking these questions. Maybe we could tell her. So I sat down with them and, and I explained to them that, I'd never been happy in the person that I was and that I'd always known I was a woman. Um, and then basically my 11 year old daughter went through all five stages of grief in about 10 minutes. Yeah. Uh, so she started off, um, denial, tried, tried reasoning, all the rest and eventually got around to acceptance. And I knew that because she asked me what was in my makeup bag. Um, I mean, I think the thing that she was most upset about was the fact that, uh, my name was Sophie because uh, best friend's mum's name was Sophie. And I had to point out to her that I'd been Sophie longer than she'd been alive. So it's sort of, yeah. yeah. The the funny thing is that, that my, my mum later on turned, turned around and said, well, not not sure about Sophie. I said, well, at that point I hadn't changed it officially yet. So I said, well, if you've got any better suggestions, let us know. And, and she said, well quite like Rhea. And I'm thinking Rhea Cook. It's like, and, and then she said, or Roxy. It's like, mum, I'm not a stripper. Um, but, but the annoying thing is that I reckon I could carry off a Roxy now. I think you could as well. <laughs> I, 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 you know what? I, I'd be well chuffed if I decided my name was Roxy five years ago. You've got to have a certain personality to do that. And uh, the little <laughs> I know you, I think you'd be able to carry that off. Yeah, I, you know what? I might just do it. I might 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 just change my name to Roxy, <laughs> or I might just use a nickname. Anyway, whatever. It, it's it's a lot politer than the other nicknames that people use for me. So, how did you how did your mum react just out of interest? And and had she ever known before you told her? <laughs> uh, well, I mum, my mum was one of only two people that I told back in two thousand. Right. Um, so the two people were, were my, my then wife and um, and my mum. And um, when when I, when I told her back in two thousand, she had no idea. Um, and and I told her sat sat in a. <laughs> it's like twenty odd years ago. And I, I still remember we were sat in in a pub beer garden in Southampton, uh, and I told her and. For some reason, we ended up talking about how how fit Brad Pitt was. <laughs> um, but yeah, well, I mean, the funny thing is, when I t- told her the second time, um, we were we were in a Nando's, I think, and um, and, and there was what my mum, uh, my my wife, my kids, um, my granddaughter, um, and I wanted to tell my mum, but. Basically, they all went to the loo and just left me and my mum there for about 30 seconds. <laughs> and I just turned around to her and said, 
um, you remember that thing about 15 years ago? She said, yeah. She said, I said, yeah, yeah, I'm doing that again. <laughs> and that was it. And, and then everyone came back from the loo and it's like, okay, there you go. <laughs> I want to go back to the, the FC Bournemouth story because um, I, I, I kind of really love this because I think a lot of people who are learning about uh, somebody coming out as trans whilst in the professional game would have had sort of real concerns about how you're going to be received. But you, but your experience at FC Bournemouth was was pretty exemplary, wasn't it? Well, yeah. And uh, I mean, I think it's important to remember that it was five years ago now because um, uh, th- things are quite different in football now. We, I mean, back then we didn't have things like rainbow laces. We we didn't have things like all, all the LGBT awareness that we now have in football. Um, so... The first thing that happened was was I I, I was trying to get hold hold of the club. I I, I realised that I I had to um to tell them because um it was just before the start of the season on on the Friday I'd been to see my hairdresser in Brighton about getting hair extensions put in, and she, and she said, "Well, I can do it now for you if you want." And I said, "God, yeah, get them in." And about ten minutes later, I suddenly thought. Bugger, I've got to go take photos of footballers on Monday morning. <laughs> Can't really pretend to still be Steve. So I wonder how that fat, bald bloke became this vision of loveliness. Um, so I, I realised at that point, well, I've got no choice now. It's like I, I, I couldn't do the double life any longer. So I'm trying to get hold of my boss all Friday afternoon. Out of office, no answer. He finally got back to me Saturday afternoon from a family barbecue. And I'm sat in my car on Max's drive. And she's banging on the window and waving at me. And I'm going, I'm on the phone. And, well, she knew because I was on hands-free. So you could hear every single word, as could the entire street. So I came out to the entire street at the same time I came out to the football club. Uh, saved me a job. Um, and, and the thing is, he said, what's the matter? I said, um, I've got to tell you something before Monday. He said, what's that? I went, I'm transgender. And... It went really quiet. And the funny thing is, I gave a talk at the football club uh, about a year or so later, and he was sat in the audience. And he came up to me afterwards and said, do you remember what I said next? And I said, not really. I was sort of freaking out a bit at that point. He said, because it was so urgent you talked to me and because you'd lost so much weight so quickly, we all thought you were dying. So when you told me, I said, oh, is that all? So, so there you go. Premier League Football Club says it's better to be transgender than dying. Um, but, but it was arranged for me to go in for a meeting, uh, and we're there in the owners' box overlooking the pitch. And there's there's the chairman of the club, there's there's the commercial director, there's Eddie Howe, our first team manager, there's our assistant manager Jason Tindu, who's who's now the the manager of the club, and me in my pants or skirt and heels, looking absolutely fabulous. First time they'd ever met Sophie. Pretty sure it was the first time any of them had ever met a trans woman. Yeah, I bet. Uh, and I think that they were all expecting David Williams to walk in and go, I'm a lady. <laughs> so I like to think I was a little bit classier than that. Um, and, and the first thing that happened was I, that I still had a job. And let's face it, I really wasn't expecting that out of that meeting because as much as I loved the job, there'd never been a trans person working in football before. And strictly speaking, I was I was a contractor. They could have just not renewed my contract. Um, 
And then Eddie Howe, the manager, turned around to me and said, what can I do to make this easier for you? Yeah. And the thing is, you can't expect everyone to understand straight away. But if your boss says, what can I do to make this easier? Then that's all you can hope for. And I said, well, I need to meet the players for a match day. The first time they see me can't be as they're running down the tunnel onto the pitch. I'd be forgiven for giving a double take. Yeah. Um, so it was arranged for me to go in to shoot a training session a couple of days later. And um, we, the guys were all off warming up and Eddie Howe came up to me and he said, um, he's scared. And I said to him, well, you know what? For the first time in my life, I am totally at ease with who I am. So no, I'm not scared. And then they called all the players together and Jason Tyndall, the, the manager of the club now, just turned around and said, um, I suppose you noticed that photographer's changed a bit since last season. Uh, I'd, I'd like you to meet Sophie. And then our captain just started clapping and the rest of the players joined in. And then the captain said, right, let's go and train. And mm. I'm stood there and I'm like, was that it? Yeah. Like For me, this was like a life-changing moment. It's like I'd built it up so much. But the reality is it's like, here's a new piece of information. Okay, we've got it. Now let's move on. And, and the reality is that unless it directly affects you, when someone comes out, all it is is a new piece of information. So it, I just, it always amazes me how many people feel that they have the right, even the obligation, to turn around and express their opinion when someone comes out. It's like, it, it's like oh, oh, yeah, you know what? Obviously, they, they haven't thought about it, and it's not until I chuck my two pennyworth in that, that they'll see sense. So, but, but there's so many people that just feel obliged in, in our modern society to, to, to judge other people and, and just turn around and say all sorts of unkind and unhelpful things. Yeah. Um, and you see it every single day, especially if you're on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, um, yeah. And, and what was the reaction of the fans, Sophie? I mean, how did it, the Bournemouth fans react? Well, the interesting thing is that sort of, it wasn't really until my story broke in, in the press that people really started to notice. Um, so I, ca- I came at the start of the season, the story broke in the tabloids on January the 4th, which is actually my birthday. So gr- great birthday present that was. Um, yeah. Especially since they used horrendous photos of me. Um, they always do, don't they? Uh, and you know what? Five years later, they're still re- regurgitating the same pictures. It's like, please, there's got to be better pictures of me than those by now. <laughs> um, luckily, the Guardian did a nice interview with me the other week, uh, and and th- so there's new pictures in the pictures library. If anyone's writing an article about me, get the pictures off the Guardian. They're really nice, <laughs> and it's easy to find an article because I found it very easily. So they, yeah. they can easily Google the Guardian article, which came out yeah. recently. There you go. Yeah, buy the pictures off them. The photographer was really nice. You could do with the money. Um, <laughs> don't buy the old ones. Um, but um, the, the thing is, when, when my story broke, sort of people started coming out to me and, and sort of shaking my hand and hugging me, which post-COVID seems like such a weird thing to say. Um I really miss hugs. Um, but it's like um, they were coming up and they were saying, so glad you can be happy, so so glad you can finally be yourself. 
Uh, and and the amount of love and support that I got from the fans was amazing. There, there was one particular incident where um, it was it was LGBT History Month, and Bournemouth Uni uh, and the football club were involved in putting on an event that I was speaking at. Um, and there was a, a group of Christian fundamentalists who basically turned around and said that because the football club was involved at the uni it was akin to grooming um to, to be spreading all of this lgbt propaganda and um i i was told that i would burn forever in eternal hellfire um and and it was the fans that turned around and and actually gave us so much love and support during that really difficult time which i think was probably my first real encounter with with the the trolls um obviously i've had a lot of experience since but it was it was interesting the way way in which all these people who only a year or so before the press would have turned around and said were homophobic transphobic racist all the rest football fans aren't any of those things some people are but you can't tar an entire group of people with with that brush because if if you are then you're as bad as as the transphobes the homophobes and the racists and i mean you've suffered a fair amount of abuse sort of outside (laughs) football i mean i i saw one article about how when you appeared on Newsnight, i think about two years ago talking about transgender issues and i think you received about a thousand abusive messages in about an hour of the broadcast going out yeah Uh, that, that that was that was a doozy that one um yeah yeah it, and the thing is it was so orchestrated as well um it was yeah basically the same things being trotted out again and again and the interesting thing is that actually during the interview the i i turned around to the presenter and said that basically it was the story was a storm in a teacup and it was just people being offended because they wanted to be offended and and I, I said to him, there's people that are going to be offended just because I'm on it. And 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 then, of course, they all went and proved me right, um, which I, I think escaped, escaped them. But it, that, that, that was a particularly hard one. Um, sort of, and the death threats as well were a bit hard. But how, how, do, how do you cope with that, Sophie? I mean, how do you cope with that real negativity and, and sort of, just you know, horrible things being said to you. Well, now the the way I deal with it now is I I just think well it says so much more about them than it does about me. Um, I I don't see any difference between any form of prejudice. Uh, basically, I mean, obviously there is historical differences uh, and background differences between sort of homophobia, transphobia, racism, all the rest of it. But, but basically, they're all symptoms of the same thing. And and that that thing is the fact that there are certain people in society with what I call an empathy disconnect. Because let's face it, if you have empathy towards other human beings, you are not going to abuse someone just because of their gender identity, their sexuality, the colour of their skin, their religion, any of those things. So so it's about a deficiency in the person that's doing the abuse rather than anything that's wrong with, with the person that they're abusing. Because let's face it, if it wasn't me, 
if it was a different trans person, they'd have got exactly the same abuse. Yeah. So, so I do a lot of talking in in schools and colleges about hate crime. And the thing that I always say say to people that have been on the receiving end of it is, you know what? It feels really personal. It really does feel personal. It feels like an attack right at the the core of who you are. But it's not. Because if there was a different trans person, a different gay person, a different black person there, they'd have got exactly the same abuse. So it's not about who you are. It's about who, who the abuser is. Uh, and and that's the way I deal with it now. It's like it's not about me. I know I'm awesome, um, in a totally non-big-headed way. <laughs> um, uh, and it's like you know what? I'm I'm not going to let them. I'm not going to let them dull my shine. Yeah. You know what? It's there, there's there's enough things in this life that I struggle with, um, and and they ain't going to be one of them. So. so- how, how did the move happen from 2017 being sort of premiership football club photographer to standing for a position in parliament? Well, basically, when, when I came out in football, I had a choice. I could either keep my gob shut and keep my head down and just try and get on with life. Or I could use the fact that I worked in Premier League football and the platform that that gave me to, to try and speak up about some of the things that I cared about. Uh, and I did. I, I, I started speaking at conferences. I started speaking at various other things. And um, I started thinking about politics because I, 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 I'm a rare, rare person in politics. I, I have deeply held beliefs that I think are more important than, than party politics. Yeah. And I just saw a way of actually standing up and fighting for the things that I believed in. Uh, and and I knew that the things that I believed in were, were right. Um, so I I had no problems putting myself in, in, into the, the firing line um, because I, I knew that what I was doing was the right thing to do. Did you, did you experience much transphobia on the doorstep and when canvassing? Yeah. <laughs> no you know what surprisingly i didn't um because i mean the thing is east worthing shoreham uh was it was a constituency where i i knew trans people that had moved out of worthing because of the abuse they'd been getting um but actually the only time i remember someone actually mentioning it to me was there was this guy came up to me on the street whilst i was canvassing one day and he said, before you became the candidate, I didn't know anything about you, but I've sort of read some of your interviews and I've seen some of the stuff that you've done. And I sort of get the feeling that you're going to stand up for what you believe in, no matter how hard it is. Mm. And that's why I'm going to vote for you. Uh, I, I got a lot more stuff saying Jeremy Corbyn's a terrorist sympathizer. Um, and I had to point out that I was ex-forces and they were just talking rubbish. But it's like... But it's, I, I don't know, you, you meet a whole different kind of prejudice when you're, you're involved in, in party politics and and that politics goes so much deeper than transphobia. Yeah. Um, uh, and it is quite scary how tribal politics in this country is. Uh, it pretty much means that we, we will always have 
all or nothing governments. It's it's like both parties might have good things to say and good things to do, but you will never hear it because it is totally tribal. If one party says one thing, the other party has to say the opposite, whether they believe it or not. And and it's, it's not in the best interests of us. It's not in the best interests of the country. But that's just the system that we've got. And it's, it's quite scary that, that we are, are ruled by by this sort of <laughs> on-off switch of what's going to happen, really. And uh, we're obviously speaking at sort of um, towards the tail end, we hope, of the COVID pandemic. But the COVID pandemic has caused quite a few people to sort of... <laughs> You're more hopeful than I am. <laughs> well, perhaps. But, it, I mean, this sort of period has caused a lot of people to take stock of their lives. And you, you, you've done precisely <laughs> that, I mean, in a fairly fundamental way. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, basically, sort of, when, when COVID hit, all, all of my speaking work just evaporated within 24 hours. This year was looking like it was going to be my best year yet with uh, speaking at conferences and speaking in schools and universities. And within 24 hours, everything just went. Um, so I, I poured myself into my mental health support work and um, everyone was turning around going, oh, I can't wait for it to get back to normal. And I'm thinking, hold on, normal, normal was broken yeah. Normal meant that so many of us were struggling every month to pay our bills. I mean, I was working my ass off and I was struggling every month to pay my rent, to pay my bills. It just wasn't happening. Uh, and and I saw no way out of that, that debt spiral. Uh, and, and so many people in this country are, are in exactly the same boat. And I just decided, you know what? Stop the stop the ride! I'm getting off. I've had enough of this. Um, so so yeah, I, I've made one or two fundamental changes. I think which includes. Are you living in the mobile horse box at the moment? Um, yes, I'm actually sat in there. At the moment. I'm currently sat on a double bed, which is uh, mounted above a motorbike in the back of a horse box. Uh, I, I said that to, to a friend the other day, and she said, "Not many people get to use those words in a sentence." <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I, I bought bought a horse box that I, I've started converting. Um, it's a seven and a half ton lorry. Luckily, I'm very old because when I passed my driving test, you automatically got yeah. a seven and a half ton truck on your driving license. And you know what? I've I've been living in here for over a month now. It feels like home, uh, and I just love the freedom. Every, every day that I'm not at work, I, I'm out in the countryside. I'm out on the South Downs. Today, I I went, I parked up next to Sisbury Ring and went for a walk over over the ancient hilltop fort. And then, I, it, because I, I'm out in nature at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day, it and you've got that peace, and you've got nature all around you and at night you can see a thousand stars it's just my friends say they've never seen me looking so calm mm. uh, and you know i just i just feel that it it's i mean the thing is before before covid hit i was struggling with a number of things um 
my mental health had improved mainly through writing my first book. Uh, through writing my first book, I managed to get everything out of my head, all of the things I'd struggled with my entire life, and make sense of them all. Uh, and but I was still struggling with various things. Like I, I was, I was struggling with with various addictions. I was struggling with sex addiction. I was struggling with with drug addiction, and and all these things. And the traditional way of looking at those addictions is to deal with them in isolation. But actually, what I realised was that they were purely symptoms of the fact that my life was toxic. Yeah. So what what I've done is I've just detoxified my life, and you know, I've never felt more alive. I've never felt more at peace, uh, and I've never felt more like me. The the funny thing is that for someone who so many people are obsessed with their gender identity, it's like you know what? <laughs> On a day to day basis, my gender identity means absolutely nothing to me. I'm just me. Yeah. Um, uh, and I just love the fact that I finally find that to the core of me and what, and what, what I need to do to make, make myself happy. So what's, what's next for Sophie Cooker? I mean, I, I understand you're writing another book. Is that right? Yeah, I'm writing my second book. Uh, the first book was called Not Today, How I Chose Life. Uh, and that was based upon a philosophy that I came up with myself because I, I still, no matter how much work I did on myself, I still had days when I felt suicidal. Uh, and I realized that basically I had no control over those days. People that have never been in that dark place think, oh, it must be the result of something that's going on around you. But you know what? Sometimes you feel suicidal just because the switch in your head has gone. It's, it, it, sometimes there can be no trigger for it whatsoever. It can just be... Like you wake up in the morning and like I feel suicidal. And what I realized that I had no control over when those days came. But what I did was I I did have control over how I reacted to them. So I came up with this philosophy for myself. uh, And that philosophy was, I know that one day I might kill myself because I don't know how to stop feeling this way. But it's not going to be today. And in the meantime, I'm going to do the best that I can to enjoy every single day. And then on the day that I die, in many, many years' time, I'll look back and realize that I didn't get around to doing it. Because what it what that did was it gave me permission to have those days when, when I felt suicidal without feeling guilty and shameful about them because it was the guilt and the shame that magnified its ability to hurt me. Yeah. And And the thing is... As soon as I took the guilt and the shame away, I could stop thinking about it emotionally and start thinking about it logically. And logically, I I know that suicide isn't the end of pain. All it does is take your pain and give it to someone else. And and I can't do that to my kids. This is my pain to carry, not theirs. And secondly, I know that the feeling will pass because it always does. I first tried to take my own life when I was 12. I'm now 53, as you so kindly pointed out at the start. <laughs> um, um, so that's basically 41 years of, of what I say, what I call being a functional suicidal person. Yeah. Now, in the second, the second book is, is called Not Today, Losing My Addictions. Uh, and basically it's about how it's, it's following on from that, that whole idea of stop thinking about things 
emotionally start thinking about them logically take away the guilt and the shame from the negative behaviors that you have in your life because then you can start to think about them logically and and that's what i did with my addictions um and the thing is we all have we all have things we struggle with all of us have little what i call voids in our souls caused by trauma caused by loss caused by loneliness caused by so many things and quite often we try to fill those voids with things and and quite often the things that we choose are really unhealthy things whether whether it's alcohol or drugs or sex or dodgy relationships or food or work or any of these things that we try to use to numb that pain and ultimately what i started to do was to try and replace those negative things with positive things and hence i'm living in a horse box (laughs) (laughs) it sounds like a fairly cathartic process though this this second book yeah well the first first one was massively so uh and and the, the second one because basically to write to write any of these books i have to live it yeah uh and it's like right what happens if I do this? It's like, it's like my life is an experiment, <laughs> uh, which, which I'm sure some some my 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 critics and my trolls would would certainly agree with. I'm some kind of Frankenstein's monster. I want to ask you the same question I've asked of all my guests, Sophie. And I think this is a really difficult question to ask because, um, particularly for people with a you know, who's been on a trans journey, because as you say, it was even worse in the 70s for trans people, you know, rather than the LGB community. But um, the first question I ask all my guests is, if you were to have your sort of coming out journey again, would you do anything differently? Yeah, I wouldn't buy those miniskirts. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, I've got chunky ties, just don't work. Um <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think think that would be the biggest piece of advice. Um, yeah, chunky size, don't wear mini skirts. And the second question I ask is, you know, for people who are in that position of beginning their trans journey, I mean, have you got any advice to give people? Oof. That that's the tough one because I I, I always believe that. Any of these coming out journeys, whether whether it's uh, sexuality or gender identity, is such a personal journey. Yeah, um, I, I think it's impossible for anyone to offer any advice because what works for one person may not work for another person. Some people come out at some ages. Some people never come out. And you know what? Whatever is right for you, whatever. Uh, I, I would never tell someone that they had to come out because that's just really unfair. But what I would say is that just trust in your gut. Just, just, just basically <laughs> make a decision and then own it. Yeah. Because the the worst thing you can do with anything in life is indecision. And let's face it, she says sat here in a horse box. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I'm a strong believer that on life's path, you, you reach a fork in the road. You pick one of a multitude of ways. Once you're on that path, you can't wish or hope that you were back on a different path. 
because there's no way back to that path. You're on a new path now. You you can try to get to an approximation of the old path, but you will never get back to, to the exact place that you were because things have changed. Yeah. So I I think the, the advice that I would give to anyone, and this isn't just about coming out. This is just about this is about life in general. Don't do regret. Don't regret anything. Um, I, I'd rather get to the end of my life and just look back on it and go, well, that was interesting, um, rather than sitting there and go, oh, if only I hadn't done that. Yeah, I'm guessing there's going to be a few more interesting turns in, in your life still, So, if I can't imagine you're going to just lead a very sort of straightforward life from now on. So I very much look forward to seeing what, what happens next. What, what does remain for me to do, though, is to, to thank you very much because it's been a, an absolute privilege to have you share your story with me and the listeners and be so candid and... Thanks for having me on. ...and entertaining. It's been a, it's been a real honour to have you uh, chat to me, so thank you very much indeed. My absolute pleasure and honour. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, please rate, review and subscribe and get in touch with us via Twitter or Instagram or through the website.